All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be making our way this morning. But as you guys make your way to the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter as a follow-up, essentially, to his first letter. And so the church in Corinth that he planted in Acts 18, uh, they've got all kinds of struggles within the church. There's all types of sin issues that have taken root, and as a result, Paul's gotten word, and so he, he sends them the letter of 1 Corinthians really to address these base issues that the Corinthians have taking place. And yet, for many, they uh, did not receive Paul's warnings or his word. Instead, they flatly rejected what Paul had to say. And so as Paul receives and, and catches word of this rejection, he also catches word that they've questioned him, they've questioned his character, they questioned his motive, they even questioned his physical stature. Paul's just a short little guy. And so they made fun of Paul in all sorts of ways. But what I want to point out to you this morning is how Paul viewed the church before we dive into the 11th chapter. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. He says to them, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So as Paul was writing, he wasn't simply writing a letter to a church. These were people that he had fathered in the faith. As he looked at them, he realized they came out of all kinds of uh, pagan idolatry. They had come out of uh, Jewish religiosity. They had all these things that they had been delivered from. And so when he looked at them, he really saw his own kids. And like a parent, as he's seen them come to birth in Christ Jesus, he's concerned about them. He's worried that they were being led astray by all these other teachers that were really, even though they'd taken up human form, they were actually Satan in the flesh. They were trying to lead them astray to essentially destroy them. And so Paul, knowing that, he's writing to them from this context as a father in the faith. And this is where we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so Paul begins this 11th chapter by saying, I'm, I'm jealous not of you Corinthians, but for you Corinthians. Now it's important to understand this word jealousy that gets thrown out because often we have a negative connotation when it comes to jealousy. But, but the word uh, to be jealous, it means to want something back that was previously yours. And so to be jealous, you have to first had possession of something, lost it, and now you desire to have it back, which is why God can describe himself as a jealous God. In fact, in Exodus, he even says, my name is jealous. He, he desires to have us back. He had a relationship with us. We are his creation. We've turned away, and he desires to have us back. And Paul, as he's looking at these Corinthians, he says, I'm jealous for you which is far different from envy, which means I want something that wasn't mine in the first place. And so Paul is jealous for them, but read with me what he's jealous for. I'm jealous for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So remember how Paul viewed himself. He viewed himself as a father to the church there in Corinth. And as he thought of himself in this way, he realized as a Jewish father, the way it would work in marriages is you would have arranged marriages. You would have a, a daughter that you would betroth to. You would give over to a, another family for her to have a husband. Now there's some of you with daughters, and you're like, that's a pretty fantastic idea. 
I think I would pick that route to go versus letting some knucklehead marry my daughter. And this is what Paul is saying. He's bringing them back to this mindset that he is, as a spiritual father, he's looking at this relationship, but the father of the bride was responsible for the purity of his daughter. It was the father's responsibility to make sure the daughter was a chaste virgin, was pure as he gave her away. And this is what Paul's bringing us back to. He is seeing all these impurities taking place inside the church in Corinth, and he's jealous for them to have that kind of purity. He knows that they've got all these outside influences, the religion that gets pressed in from the Jews and the pagan idolatry from the Greeks. And and what he wants is for them to, to clean it up. Because the the Spirit of God will have no place with idolatry. He won't stand for it. So for that, I I was thinking this through, and I found myself in 1 Samuel chapter 5 this week. And in this spot, the nation of Israel had fallen on a very hard time spiritually. They had essentially were walking away from the Lord. We've just come out of the book of Judges and all the sin issues they've had. And it's gotten so bad for the nation of Israel that the very picture of the Spirit of God they have, which was the Ark of the Covenant, has been taken in battle by their arch enemy, the Philistines. They have taken uh, the Ark of the Covenant back to uh, Philistia. They've put it in the temple of Dagon, their, their God that they had, that they worshipped. They knew that the God of Israel was powerful because they'd been in battle with them, and so they took their powerful God and they tried to meld it together with Dagon, who was this weird, like, half-fish, half-man God. And so they put uh, the ark there in the temple of Dagon, and when they came back the next morning, uh, Dagon had fallen over on his face in uh, bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. So the, the priests there for the Temple of Dagon, look at this, well, that's not good, Dagon fell over. So what they do is they prop Dagon back up in the corner, there you go, big guy, and they leave and they come back the next day. And what you know is, once again, Dagon has fallen over before the Lord, only this time his hands have been broken off and the fishy part was broken off from the rest. What had happened in the, the country of uh, Philistia was even worse, is the, there was a plague that had broken out in the land. And what our scripture tells us is the people had great tumors. And as I was researching this, what I found is uh, these tumors were likely a case of hemorrhoids. The Lord had actually sent a plague of hemorrhoids to the people. Now, you never learned that in no Bible school, did you? Maybe you're like, I didn't get that. I didn't get the hemorrhoid story downstairs. I know. This is, it's in the book. And so they've been plagued with hemorrhoids. They're like, we got to do something. And so what we find is, and the reason I wanted to bring this about is that any time you've got idolatry in your life, two things. First of all, it means no rest. Because over and over again, our idols will fall, and we have to then go prop them back up. And if you've got to prop your God up over and over again, He is no God worthy of serving whatsoever. The second thing that will happen as we are believers in Jesus, when we allow idolatry to infect our lives, is there will be pain. There will be some discomfort. And this is not that God sent pain our way. It's that he's allowed it to have and to, to literally sometimes be a pain in the backside. It, sometimes there's some pain and, and, and itchy stuff that has to happen for us to go, I'm very uncomfortable right now in this situation. And the reason is because he loves us. He loves us enough to allow these things in our lives so that we will rid idolatry from the temple. This is what Paul was trying to communicate to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he tells them, 
in the third chapter that you're the temple of God. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which you are. Your body is the temple. And if you've got idols that you've propped up in the corner, God loves you enough to see those things fall over. And it's a challenge to us not to pick them up over and over again. Because so often we wonder why we're exhausted, why we're in pain. And, and I would submit that in my life I've found it's often I've got an idolatry issue that I need to address. I need to drive that thing out of the temple of God. Now, Paul, back to Second uh, Corinthians and away from hemorrhoid talk. Verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What Paul's saying here is they have been seduced by these teachers that have come in from the outside. They've infiltrated into Corinth, and as Eve was seduced, so they are also being seduced. Back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And here we see the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman, verse 2, said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it nor touch it, lest you die. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of, the, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave it to her husband and he ate. And so we see the fall of mankind, but how did it begin? It began with the Word of God being questioned. This is what Satan always does. He gets in our head and he begins to, to question God's Word. Did God really say, are you sure that's what it says in Scripture? And then he out and out lies. But notice with me, as he tells a lie, what Eve does. She's been tempted. She looks upon the fruit. And what does she say? The, the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes and a desirable tree to make one wise. If I fast forward to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, this is John saying, here's Satan's plays that he runs on us. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of, the pride of life, is not of the Father but of the world. The same three plays that Satan ran on Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are the same plays he continues to run on us to this day. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He runs it on us over and over and over again. And these false teachers have come in and, and listened to what they've promised. It's to make one wise was the final thing that Eve saw. They had promised a deeper spirituality. This is what they had fallen into, that there's, there's so much more. If you just believe these things and you press in and you follow into the secret club, you'll have a deeper spirituality. Those other people, they're not as spiritual as you are, but you can press in. You can know Him to a greater degree than anybody else. And there's this promise of additional spiritual knowledge that it's not just the simplicity of the gospel. And yet that's exactly what Paul is trying to get them back to. You've walked away from the simplicity of the gospel message. 
In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is in a Philippine uh, jail, in a Philippian jail, there with Silas. And as they're there in the jail cell, sitting on a, a cold concrete floor, likely naked with their feet in stocks, uh, they were doing exactly what you and I would do. They're praising the Lord, of course. And so they're, they're singing praises to God in this awful position. And what happens is the prison floor shakes, the stocks fall off their feet, the doors fly open, and they are free to go. And for this Philippian jailer, this Roman soldier keeping tabs on them, he begins to do the only thing he knows. He draws his sword not to start uh, slicing away at prisoners, but to actually take his own life. Because what he knows is Roman law says that all those sentences that were against all the prisoners that he lost, those all go on his head. And he's deciding to end his life. But Paul called to him in verse 28 and says, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light, and he ran in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out, and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This man is so blown away but that by an open prison door, they decide to stay put. And he cries out to them, what do I have to do to know your God? This is unlike anything I could ever imagine. In verse 31, they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's all the more complicated it was. Believe on Jesus, and you will be saved. This is the simplicity that exists within the gospel. It's, it's beautiful, and yet there are all kinds of people that say, to, to know deeper, to know more, you're going to have to do these things. Paul says that's hogwash. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, look, it's godliness with contentment that's great gain. You're after all these gains, be it spiritually or physically, and yet it's godliness with being content. It's that simple. And there are all kinds of people that say, this is a simple way to view Scripture, and I'll tell you what it is, is it's freeing. You don't have to be shackled by that anymore. It is so free to live like this. Now, Paul continues here in verse 4, and he says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And so he, he is planting a flag in this spot. The Apostle Paul, he didn't plant flags at every turn. But in this place, he says, look, I, you can have all the different takes you want to have. Uh, you can have eschatologies, soteriologies, numerologies, theologies. Pick your ology, you can have it. But what he would not vary from is Jesus, his authority, and his deity. In Galatians chapter 1, he said the same thing to the church in Galatia. I don't care if an angel shows up. If he's preaching to you a different gospel, let him be accursed, is what Paul says. Let him be anathema. And so he's making this clear, and by pressing into the Word of God, you can come to no other conclusion than Jesus has all authority. He is fully deity. Now verse 5, he says, For I consider that I am not, all in, I'm not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. So there are these other teachers coming into Corinth, and what they're trying to convince the Corinthians is that they are superior. They are imminent. What Paul is doing here, sanctified sarcasm is what Paul is using. He's saying they're coming in as super apostles, swooping in to save the day from the apostle Paul. And what Paul wants to make it clear is uh, they're not superior to me. They're not more imminent than I am. They're not more super than I am. And, and Paul is saying this not from a spot of bragging about himself, 
It's important to look at his ministry. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am chief among all sinners. Paul had a right view of himself, but what he also knew is Jesus was the one that was superior. He came to Corinth to plant this church because God told him to. This was the authority that he was working under. If you question Paul or his resume, look at Acts chapter 9. It's clear God called him to take the word to the Gentiles. And have you ever noticed that people that really have the most fascinating of resumes, they don't have to show them off to everybody. They don't have to flash them to everybody. Hey, see, and look how, how great I am. I was talking to a friend of mine this week about a church that he serves in down in Florida. And and this friend, he serves on the security team. And the guy uh, that he serves under was the former assistant director to the FBI. And so huge mega church, lots of security. But this guy, uh, my buddy was kind of enamored with his resume. It's like, this is, this guy is a former assistant director to the FBI. But then he got the chance to meet him last week. And as he got the chance to meet this gentleman, what he said he was surprised with was he never once mentioned his resume. He didn't talk to him at all about all the wonderful things he'd done, which he was interested in, but instead he asked my buddy about his family, about his daughter and his wife. He didn't follow that question up by asking about his walk with Jesus. How are you and Jesus doing? He was at no point concerned about his resume. He knew what it was. He didn't need to flash it around. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm, I'm interested in you, not in giving you my resume. And you shouldn't be enamored by their resume when they want to flash it around either. For in verse 6, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. Here, Paul is speaking to what they had commented about in chapter 10, verse 10, where they said of Paul's letters, they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. What Paul is saying here sarcastically is, okay, so I'm not a a trained professional speaker like all these people who are coming in to to supposedly with this great resume to speak to you, but what I am not, uh, what I am not short on is knowledge. I have knowledge that's been given to me by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, by the way, never claimed to be the greatest public speaker of all time. He never said, look, I've, I've got this gift of speaking. He did, in fact, have a calling, but he never said he was the greatest speaker. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 9, as Paul was, is teaching here, but this is a fascinating story about his speaking. In verse 9, And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. And he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now there are times where maybe I've gone on and on, and you're like, I don't know if this is going well, but I've never killed any of you. You all made it alive to the end of the service. Never one time. Paul talked so long, a dude died. He fell out a window and died. Paul's reaction to this was he went down there where the young man was, he laid on top of him and prayed, and the guy popped back up from the dead. And you know what the Apostle Paul did? Went back to teaching the Bible. That's how he rolled. Hey, he often long, never winded. Paul wasn't going to stop. Even somebody dying in service wasn't going to stop him from teaching the Word of God. And I love this because Paul was doing what he was called to do. This is what Paul was gifted in. He was called to teach. And I share that to say, oftentimes, uh, we get excited about a motivational speaker, but of all the messages I've ever set through by some really motivating, dynamic people, 
I can't hardly remember any of their words. What I do remember, what does resonate is the word. The word is the thing that never changes. It never returns void. And so Paul is commenting here about this. I gave you my knowledge. I gave you the word of God, which will not return void. He continues in verse 7, and he says, Here, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And and everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. In verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. So apparently these super apostles were also not afraid to send super invoices. They were not afraid to charge mightily for their tremendous work that they had done. And so Paul's commenting here because uh, the reality was he didn't charge the Corinthians a thing. Instead of charging them, he went out and worked as a, as a tent maker to support his ministry. And their reaction to that was instead of complimenting Paul on this and not charging, they turned it into a criticism. That Paul couldn't charge for his work because, well, frankly, he's not that good at it. That's why Paul doesn't charge for his services. And so they turned things around on the Apostle Paul. But the reason Paul's saying he didn't charge is because he knew that they would stumble. It would stumble them. They struggled so much with money, and it wasn't because they didn't have money. They had plenty. This is why the other teachers were coming in. They struggled because they had a heart issue. They were a selfish group of people. The Macedonians, on the other hand, they didn't have the financial resources of the Corinthians, but yet they gave to the Apostle Paul because they so loved him. And what Paul's saying is they actually supported the ministry that I was able to bring to you. They could have complained and said, I cheated them because I brought the word to you free of charge. All this to say, why on earth would Paul put up with this drama? I mean, why would Paul, why wouldn't he have just said, forget the Corinthian church and the, the only reason I can come up with this, he loved them. He loved these guys. As I was studying through this, thinking about Paul growing up, he grew up in, in Tarsus, a Roman provincial city. Apparently his family had some kind of means because they sent him to the, to the best Hebrew school around. He studied under Gamaliel, the top Hebrew teacher. He also knew uh, Greek literature. He quotes it in the New Testament. And so Paul came from some kind of an upbringing. And this leads me to believe that as Paul was speaking to this Corinthians, what he saw was himself. He realized what he was saved out of. And so this deep love, this is where he's left. And he's, he's saying here in these verses, I'm not going to start charging you, but I'm also not going to stop loving you. Paul apparently, big REO Speedwagon fan. I'm going to keep on loving you. Right? This is Paul. I'm going to keep on loving you, even if you don't want to love me back. He continues in verse 12 by saying, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded, just as we are in the things of which they boast. What Paul is saying here is he's given a super apostle 
mic drop. I doubt Paul looked like this, but I love any picture where an ancient guy is doing a Chris Rock mic drop. He's like, there you go. I'm going to prove my apostleship, and I'm going to encourage these guys to do the same. I'm not going to charge you. I dare them to also not charge you here in Corinth. But what we see is, um, even though Paul took a salary, or he didn't take a salary, no matter what he did, he taught the Bible. Over and over again, he taught the Bible. Regardless of how they treated him, Paul taught the Bible. This is what he was called to do. So Paul's reward, his prize wasn't in his salary. His prize was in the call. This is what he says in Philippians 3.14. It's the upward call of Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is the prize for us in this life. If you're looking for a prize in this life, outside of the God of the universe calling you a son or a daughter and saving you for all of eternity, friends, you're going to be disappointed. This is the prize. And so for us who, who call Jesus our Lord and Savior, who believe on him, it would be better for us to be swept away right then in heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet he leaves us here so that we can be lights to those around us, so that we can be encouragement to those we come into contact with. And truly, what Paul's communicating in chapter 5 is, this is the love of Christ that compels us. It's not the love we have for Jesus that compels us. It's his amazing love that he has for us. And if it's anything outside of this, when it gets hard, and it's, it's not a if, it's a when it gets hard, the pay is never going to be enough if we're looking for a paycheck. And this is the difference between someone who is a hireling and someone who is called into ministry. It, it truly makes me a little bit nauseous if I'm talking to people in a pastoral circle and I hear about them putting their resume out there, looking for a better gig, looking for a little bit more pay, looking for a little more prominence. Because they, in fact, are a hireling. The, the truth about all this is, um, whether I took a salary from here or not, um, it wouldn't change anything I do in this spot. I'm going to keep on sharing the Bible. I'm going to keep on teaching because this is what God called me to. And the reality is, I love you guys. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. And this is what Paul's trying to communicate. What Jesus says in Roman, or John, Jesus didn't speak in Romans. He was already in heaven. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 11 is this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. And the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. That's the difference. For a good shepherd, when the wolves come, and they will always come, uh, the call here is to get out the old Clark County whooping stick and chase off the wolves. And that's what we're called to do. But then it also means that we are called to lay our life down for our sheep. And so Paul wants to make it very clear, I'm not a hireling. I'm not out for hire. I'm doing this simply out of love, and I dare them to do the same. He continues in verse 13 by saying, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Oftentimes we get the wrong 
idea of who Satan is, especially coming off of the Halloween holiday. You've got kids, or unfortunately sometimes grown adults, wearing costumes where they got the horns and the pitchfork, and they're like, you know, oh, there's the devil, look out. But here's the reality about what Scripture tells us regarding Satan. Um, Scripture tells us he is the father of lies, ruler of demons, the evil one, a murderer, a liar from the very beginning is what Jesus says. And yet the Scriptures also tell us his name is Lucifer. His name means a luminescent one. He is a, a son of the morning, a day star, anointed cherub, on and on. So Satan has these different names that he's given in Scripture, but I want you to get this one truth very clear. He is your enemy. Not just my enemy, not our enemy. He is your enemy. It is personal. He's your adversary is what First Peter 5.8. He is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. His desire for you is for you to be devoured, completely, totally dead, snuffed out. This is what he is after. And what he will do in order to make that happen is to morph into any figure he needs to morph himself into. He will change and shapeshift all with the idea of being able to devour you. So if he needs to be an angel of darkness, for you, if that's what you desire, if you want to go dark, you want to get nasty, he will go dark and just as nasty as you want him to go. He will meet you to the absolute depths you want him to go to in order to see you dead. But on the flip side, if we desire an angel of light, he will pose as a great moral light. Oftentimes, even on Sunday morning, bringing you a great message as an angel of light. And what he'll present to you is morality and works. And if you just do these things, you can have salvation. Did you catch that? If you do these things, if you take these steps, he will present himself in such a way that we're tricked by an angel of light. And the question is, and that's scary to think about, how do we know the difference? How do we know if he's an angel of light or a true messenger of God. What Jesus says is, in Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know them. You'll be able to tell if they're a good fruit or a bad fruit if you just examine the fruit. Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 about these fruits. He says there, for the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the fruit. It's not multiple fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit is love. But when you bite into the fruit of the Spirit, I lost Galatians, it tastes like love, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. This is what the fruit tastes like. And against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That the fruit of the Spirit is love. And in order to know, we have to get up there and examine the fruit. As we examine the fruit in our own lives as well, what does it look like in my life? Does it taste like these things? And yet for those posers, those angels of light, they will present to you rules and living morally, and it's oh so close to the message, and yet it's off just enough. And if you've ever uh, surveyed anything, I'm an engineering nerd, so sorry, you're going to get a surveyor 
uh, example. But if we started on this corner of this little two-acre parcel and we were off just oh so much, a half degree, by the time we get all the way around to the other end, the circuit doesn't close. We're off several inches, maybe even several feet. And friends, when you lay that over a lifetime, being off just a little bit, it makes eternal differences. And, and the, the answer is, or the question must be, if I've got to follow these rules or live morally, what happens if I don't? What happens if I can't? What happens if I won't do it? We are in deep trouble if this is how we live. But what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, is worth highlighting in our Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The only way we're saved is by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, and it's through faith that we exercise this. I, I believe in Him. I don't believe in me whatsoever, but I believe in Him. And it's through this belief, through this faith we have, and the grace Him pouring Himself out. It, it's not in my works, lest any of us should boast. And it doesn't matter how shiny or luminescent or beautiful these things seem, if they're giving you any other gospel other than the grace of Jesus and believing in Him through faith, then it's of no effect. It's no good. Paul wraps up here in verse 15 by saying, Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. There were all kinds of people pressing in on Jesus as they saw him doing all these miracles and wondering, what do we do to do the works of God? How is it? We see this, these things you're able to do. How do we have what you have? And this is what Jesus communicated to them in John chapter 6, verse 28. Jesus here in John 6, verse 28 says this. Actually, they approached Him in verse 28. They said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus' response to them was, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. If you're one who likes checklists and you want to make sure you've got your lists checked and you're doing what you need to do to make your way to heaven, here you have it. Believe on Him who He sent. Even if angels of light show up here and they want to convince you otherwise, they want to give you a flowery message, it's believe on Him who He sent. It's just that simple. Anything else is dangerous. Anything else, what Paul would write to the Galatians is, is foolishness. In fact, what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 is this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? This was their problem. They, they were trying to do a work in order to achieve righteousness. And what Paul's saying is it's foolish. You can't possibly be that righteous. It's leading you down a dangerous path. The only thing we're called to do is believe on Him who He sent and then allow Him to change us from the inside out. And yet at times, for us, 
we wonder, or at least I wonder, do I have enough belief? I mean, maybe my belief doesn't match up. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe it's not what God was looking for. And there was a man in Mark chapter 9 who was struggling with this. His son was demon-possessed. He had come to Jesus. He had enough belief to make his way to Jesus. And what Jesus says to him about his son and about his faith was, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus is repeating this message. If you believe, all things are possible. And yet the man in verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is how the man responded. He looked at his belief and he wondered, is it enough? He cried out, I I believe, but I don't know if this is enough. Help my unbelief. What Jesus would go on to do is exactly what he said he would. He healed this man's son. He honored this man's little bit of belief. His little mustard seed of faith. And so many times, that's what he's calling us to. To look beyond our mess, beyond our failure, even beyond our unbelief and say, Lord, I believe. Would you please help my unbelief? Father, we thank you and we praise you for taking even our little microscopic amounts of belief. Lord, we thank you for believing in, for for giving us more belief. When we cry out to you, Lord, help our unbelief. You are so gracious to grow us from belief to belief, from grace to grace, from faith to faith, Lord. We thank you. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, would you examine us from head to toe for the idolatry that we've tried to prop up in our lives? for the things that we've tried to pass off as just good enough and just getting by. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to make us very uncomfortable. Holy Spirit, would you please examine our hearts, examine our minds today as we give ourselves over to you to observe communion. Thank you for this picture of grace that you've given us, this reminder of your riches that Jesus paid at our expense, that if we just believe And that's all you need for salvation for all of eternity. Lord, continue to to search our hearts, search our minds. Thank you for loving us enough to not ever give up on us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.